If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. Uh, this morning we're going to be picking up halfway uh, through Genesis 47. We'll be uh, beginning at Genesis 47 uh, verse 13. And ultimately today we'll be working all the way through to the end of, of chapter 48. Uh, we will, though, be, be breaking up the reading. First we'll, uh, we'll read and consider uh, Genesis 47, 13 through the end of, of chapter 47. And that will correspond with our first point, which is spiritual lessons from hard times. And then as we uh, come to chapter 48, we'll see that God shepherds and redeems his people. And so two, two main points corresponding with the two chunks of text that we'll be working through. First, spiritual lessons from hard times in the second half of chapter 47. And then from chapter 48, the Lord shepherds and redeems his people. So uh, let's look first to Genesis 47. We'll be beginning in verse 13. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land." At the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be for your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful. 
and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die came near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Now, as I said, in this uh, chunk of the text, our main point here is going to be spiritual lessons from hard times. After reading these verses concerning the, the famine in Egypt, I think we should be able to see how dependent our lives are on things that we may seldom think about. I'm not suggesting that we seldom think about food. We often think about food, usually at least three times a day, right? But what we may not often think about is the fertility of fields and the possibility of famine. We may not think too much about concerns related to the supply chains. I realize we might have thought that about those things a little bit more during the, the pandemic, but I would venture to say that it's, it's probably not keeping you up at night thinking about the supply chain. As a rule, I think that we in this country often take it for granted that there will be plenty of food available and that we will most likely have the wherewithal to obtain it. I realize there are exceptions to the rule, for sure. There are people who go hungry in our country. Surely that's true. But as a general rule, in general, I think the expectation of the vast majority of us in this room is that there will be food on the shelves in the grocery store and that we will be able to obtain it by some means or other. The latter half of Genesis 47, however, is a reminder to us that there are some expectations that may not necessarily be fulfilled. There's no guarantee. Life can get crazy, to say the least. There was one writer uh, who observed, he wasn't talking about the famine here in Egypt or anything of that nature, but he just made a, a general observation about life, and I think this is spot on. He said, the weeks of one summer, the brief interval between the springing of the blade and the putting of the sickle on our fields may see pass away as a forgotten dream what we believed to stand as firm as a mountain. The point is, it doesn't take long for things in this world to change very rapidly, for things to get really bad really quickly. And here in these verses, we see the severity of the famine, and we see the great impoverishment of the Egyptian people. They spend all of their money, and when the money runs out, they still need food. They're willing to give up their livestock for the food. And when that year was done and the livestock were gone, they were willing to give up their lands not only their lands, but also themselves. And they themselves are willing enough to, to go along with this. We see that very clearly in verses 18 and 19 when they say to Joseph, they say, there is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. Now, I think we can observe here that there was some truth in what Satan said to the Lord as recorded in Job 
All that a man has, he will give for his life. Satan is a liar and the father of lies, but some things he gets halfway right. And for these people, life was more important than money, more important than livestock, more important than land, and more important, at least to them, than their own personal liberty. When push came to shove, their priorities were shown. They wanted to live, and they did what they needed to do in order to stay alive. And we'll, we'll come back to this, this idea about our priorities showing up when, when push comes to shove. Now we see here in verses 23 and 24 that Joseph moves them off the land and into the cities, but yet allows them to work the land. This uh, seems to be kind of a sharecropping agreement. The tenants get four-fifths of the produce, and then the one-fifth goes to Pharaoh. And it seems almost that this may have functioned both as, as taxes to Pharaoh and as rent for the land, this four-fifths, one-fifth uh, statute that Joseph laid down. Now, it's hard to say how everyone in our society would feel at the end of such a ride, right? These, uh, these Egyptians had had the seven years of plenty in which they could store up, and now they've had the seven years of famine. And at the end of the seven years of famine, they're enslaved, their property is gone, their money is gone, and their lands belong to Pharaoh. My sense is that the majority opinion of us, if this were to have happened to us, would not be that which these people here express in verse 25. They're full of gratitude. They say, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. There was, there was a sense of gratitude. There was a sense of indebtedness. These people, at the end of it all, were thankful just to be alive. Thankful to be living in the cities of Egypt and have the opportunity to work Pharaoh's land. My sense is that these days, at least in our society, people would tend to be more enraged rather than thankful. I think that with probably several things going on, we probably have different expectations from our government than these Egyptians did. Also, we probably have a greater sense of entitlement than these people did. Uh, You may hear some people complain about Big Brother, but they might actually be thankful for Big Brother to help them out if they need a bailout or something of that nature. These ancient Egyptians seemed to harbor no expectations that their government was required to take care of them when things got tough. And though their survival cost them all that they had, yet they were grateful. And it's noteworthy, though, to see the contrast that comes in verse 27. While the Egyptians are being impoverished by the famine, God's people, on the other hand, in Goshen, are prospering. They came to Egypt from the famine in Canaan, and their fortunes improved. They're acquiring property, they're becoming numerous, and already, even as early as this, we're starting to see the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Jacob when he gave Jacob the go-ahead to go down to Egypt in early in chapter 46. He had told Jacob that he would make him a great nation in Egypt, and we see the, the beginnings of that fulfillment here. In verse 27, as they are becoming fruitful and very numerous. And so as we, as we think about the, the situation that's laid out for us here in this second half of, of chapter 47 and try to draw some, some spiritual lessons from these hard times, I want to make two observations, and we'll, we'll consider them each in turn. Number one, since Christ has saved us, he is worthy of our complete service. Since Christ has saved us, he is worthy of our complete service. 
And number two, when push comes to shove, your priorities will show themselves. When push comes to shove, your priorities will show themselves. And so the first observation, since Christ has saved us, he's worthy of our complete service. Now we've, we've already seen in the book of Genesis how Joseph is a type or a forerunner of Christ in some ways. We see it here in that Joseph not only saved his own family from the famine, but he also saved the nation of Egypt. And even so it was for our Lord Jesus Christ. It was foretold of him by Isaiah the prophet that it was too small a thing for him to merely raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He was also to be a light for the nations, for the Gentiles, so that the nations of the world might be saved. And in these Egyptians, we see the correct disposition of those who have had their lives spared. They say, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. In other words, they were willing to give themselves completely to the service of Pharaoh on account of the fact that their lives had been saved. And even so, it should be with us with respect to Christ. Matthew Henry commented on verse 25 and said, There is good reason that the Savior of our lives should be the master of our lives. Savior of our lives should be the master of our lives. And this is what Paul was getting at in Romans 12.1 when he said, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so if the Egyptians owed their service to Pharaoh because Pharaoh had saved their lives through Joseph, then how much more do we owe our full allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because Joseph had saved these Egyptians from death, but only temporarily, right? Everybody whose life he saved here eventually died. Within a few decades, they were all gone, for sure. Joseph's intervention was only delaying the inevitable death which would overtake them all. But Christ, on the other hand, gives to his people an eternal salvation. Apart from Christ, we are under the sentence of eternal death, which is to say that we're headed for hell and are already under condemnation because of our sins. We're dead in transgressions and sins and are headed toward the eternal death of hell. The sin of Adam in the garden resulted in death and condemnation coming to all men, including to us. But now with the coming of Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 5.18 that through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That is justification of life to all who believe. Our Lord Jesus rescues from eternal death all who come to him, all who turn from their sins and trust in him. And therefore, if these Egyptians were willing to give themselves completely to the service of Pharaoh, merely on account of the fact that their physical lives had been saved and their physical deaths had been postponed, how much more then do we owe our full allegiance to Christ, who is Lord and Savior, and therefore he must be Lord and Savior of all who come to him. And our service to Christ must never be a grudging service. Right? We must never be like that man in the parable who viewed his master as a hard man 
And instead of putting that talent to work while his master was gone, just, just buried it and hid it away in the ground. In the gospel, we see the beauty and the glory of the benevolence of God. In the gospel, we see what we all know, right? John 3.16, that God so loved the world. The world as big as it is and as bad as it is. He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We deserve death and hell, but Jesus came and suffered what we deserved. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross. And we, we sang about that earlier when we were singing the, the Apostles' Creed, when we sang that Jesus was crucified, enduring hell. Now, this is not the time or the place for a full discussion of that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. But what should be said is that the, the hymn which we sang seems to interpret that phrase as did Calvin and the Heidelberg Catechism, which is to say that when Christ was suffering on the cross, he was bearing the wrath of God in our place, which is equivalent to the pains of the damned in hell. It was there on the cross that he was bearing our sins in his own body on the tree and was therefore bearing the wrath of God, which should have been poured out on us. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when we, when we talk about substitutionary atonement, we really mean it. Or at least we should really mean it, because that's what really happened. That the God-man, Jesus Christ, was suffering in his body and his soul for us to deliver us from sin and death and hell. Far be it from us to suppose that Christ suffered less than what we deserved as he was suffering there on the cross. And as the New Testament makes clear to us, it is in this that the love of God is manifested. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think of 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Likewise, Galatians 2.20, as Paul speaks of the son of God who loved me and gave up himself for me. The point is, is that when we see the depth of the sacrifice of Christ, when we see what he endured on the cross on our behalf and understand that this is the demonstration of his love toward us, this then should stir us up to serve Christ with all that we are. Isaac Watts said it well in his hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And so, by the mercies of God, Brothers and sisters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We must say, Lord Jesus, you have saved us. You have given us eternal life in place of eternal death. We will give ourselves to serve you completely. We will be your servants forever. And this brings us into our, our second observation here is that your priorities will show themselves, right? We've seen this with respect to the Egyptians. Their priority was staying alive. They did what they had to do to stay alive. They gave up their money, their animals, their land, their personal liberty. They understood that life was precious and were willing to make whatever sacrifices they needed to do to preserve it. And I, I don't fault them for the decisions that they made under the circumstances. But from this, I think we can 
glean out the general observation that as a rule in life, our priorities are going to show themselves. Your priorities, my priorities, will manifest themselves. And I think uh, this is particularly true and noteworthy in moments of crisis, right? This here in our text was a moment of crisis. Starvation was on the table. What are you going to do? They made their choice. But nevertheless, I think we also see this holding true in just the the -the run-of-the-mill events from, from day to day. The things that we value and prioritize will be evident in just run-of-the-mill events from day to day. If a husband loves his wife, if a wife loves her husband, if a parent loves a child, if a child honors their parents and so forth, then this is going to be evident by what they do, what they say, what they don't say, and what they don't do. It's going to be evident in what they give up and sacrifice in order to love and to honor those whom they claim to love and honor. It's going to be the same in our relationship with the Lord. For all those of us who say from the heart, Lord Jesus, you have saved us, you have given us eternal life in place of eternal death, we will give ourselves to serve you completely, we will be your servants, then that attitude is going to manifest itself on a practical level, in the -the run-of-the-mill events from day to day. If our priority is to serve Christ, then that will be seen in how we live our lives. If our lives are marked by obedience to Christ, it will be evident that we love him. Jesus said as much, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, obviously, no one of us is going to keep the commandments of Christ without fault, and blemish. And so we're not speaking here of a perfect keeping of Christ's commandment, but rather of a general and habitual pattern of keeping Christ's commandments. That if we love him, we're going to keep his commandments. If we love him and trust him, then our lives are going to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Apart from Christ... Our lives are going to be marked by other things, right? And when Paul gave out the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians 5, he had previously mentioned what he called the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And he said that those who practice those things do not inherit the kingdom of God. Where our priorities are, it's going to manifest itself in our lives. And Jesus is is very clear that what is in our hearts is going to show itself. He said, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil, Matthew 12, 35. And so these things will will be evident. And part of our obedience to Christ will show itself in loving his people, loving his word, in worshiping him in the gathered assembly of his people. If we love Christ, we're going to be with Christ's people, fellowshipping with them, hearing the word together, communing together in the Lord's Supper, worshiping God together. And if we find that worshiping God and hearing his word where his people are gathered is not a priority for us, then we should pay attention that 
that's pretty probable evidence that all is not well in our hearts, that all is not as it ought to be in our priorities. And that's, that's probably putting it mildly. And so we need to pay attention to how we spend our time and how we spend our money, where we place our, our efforts in life, where we place our affections in life. We need to pay attention to, to what we long for in our hearts because this is going to give us some indication as to where our hearts are. And if we find that our hearts are not where they ought to be, as we will all find that to be the case sometimes, then we just need to repent. We need to look to the Lord. We have a Savior who has loved us and given himself for us. We have him as our high priest and our intercessor. We have to look to him again and make the necessary course correction. Because in one sense, our life as Christians is that of a continual course correction. If we became sinless at the moment of our conversion, we would just fix our eyes on Jesus and walk in a straight line to him. There'd be no diversion from side to side, no need to correct our course because we'd always be running in the right direction, always running straight to him, always running straight in line with his commandments. But as it is, since we do not become sinless at conversion, we therefore get get distracted from time to time as we're on our journey to heaven. We are just like Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress on his way to the Celestial City. He was, if you're familiar with the book, continually getting sidetracked and distracted by all of these, uh, these characters and bypaths that he came across as he was on his way to heaven. And we do the same. Hence the need for continual course correction, getting right back on the path the way we need to go. Hence those words of instruction that we read together this morning from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's serve him completely. And if our priorities are not where they ought to be, let's make the necessary course correction. Fix our eyes on Christ and follow him. Now, let's, let's pick up reading in chapter 48, verse 1, as we come to our second point, which is the Lord shepherds and redeems his people. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. And they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. 
when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a a people. He also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, here we see Jacob at the end of life, recognizing that his earthly life is nearly at an end. And I think as we look at the the close of Jacob's life here in uh, those last verses of chapter 47, chapter 48, and then, Lord willing, next week in chapter 49, there there are three main things that we ought to see going on here at the end of Jacob's life. First, at the close of chapter 47 is his desire to be buried in the land of Canaan, in the burial place of his fathers, and therefore not in Egypt. And this is so important and such a priority to him that he makes Joseph swear concerning it. Secondly, we see, as uh, the book of chapter 48 tells us about, this adoption of Manasseh and Ephraim, as he takes his grandsons and adopts them as his own sons, such that they will receive inheritances in the land of Canaan, just like his other sons would. He says there in verse 7, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. 
and he blesses them and gives a prophecy concerning each of these two, uh, two sons of Joseph. And then the third main thing is that which we'll see, Lord willing, next week in chapter 49, as he blesses each of his sons with the blessing that is appropriate for them. But for, for today, as we consider uh, what he says about wanting to be buried in Canaan and his uh, blessing there of his sons, let's consider those two things as they pertain to our text. First, in regard to his desire to be buried in Canaan, Jacob demonstrates here that he believes the promises that God has given, that God had promised that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, and Jacob believes that promise. He wants to be buried there. Obviously, his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, were buried there, and that's not an unnatural desire, I think, to want to be buried where your ancestors are buried, but I think there's more here than that. And that is that he's trusting the promises of God and he's looking forward to their fulfillment when the tribes of his sons will be brought up from Egypt into the land of Canaan. And he also understands that the literal land of Canaan was a type of the heavenly country. Right? We've, we've seen uh, throughout Genesis, how the, the patriarchs were, were sojourners, and they recognized that this earth is not their home, and Hebrews 11, of course, picks up on this idea of them being strangers and sojourners here, and, and Jacob surely is looking beyond just the literal land of Canaan to the eternal promised land of which Canaan was a type. Jacob's being buried in Canaan would then serve as a reminder to his sons and to the generations after them that Egypt was not their home. They was not supposed that their settled rest was to be there in Egypt, but rather were to get up and return to the promised land. Now, in regard to the adoption and blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh, there are a few things going on here of which we should take notice. For one, the, the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh is functionally the declaration that the right of the firstborn is being given to Joseph. Now, obviously, from a chronological standpoint, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob's sons. But as some have pointed out, Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel. And Rachel was Joseph's first rightful wife in terms of their engagement and their plans. Now, obviously, Jacob consummated a relationship with Leah first, But that was not his intention. And also in the adoption of Joseph's two sons as as equals with Joseph's 11 other brothers, this would then amount to giving Joseph a double portion of the blessing. Each of Jacob's other sons only received one, one allotment in the land of Canaan. Joseph gets two because each of his two sons gets one portion of the inheritance. And moreover... Scripture itself comments on this transfer of the birthright in 1 Chronicles 5, where we are told that Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. And we also see in in connection here uh, what Jacob mentions concerning Rachel in verse 7. He refers to her death which came to her comparatively early in life. And the implication seems to be that Jacob would have wished to have had other children 
by Rachel, but was prevented from doing so by her early death. And therefore, the adoption of these two sons of Joseph may in some way compensate for that lost potential of a future offspring coming from Rachel due to her early death. Now, we see here that when Jacob comes to bless the boys, his, his eyes were dim, even as Isaac's eyes were dim when Jacob stole the blessing from him. And we also observe here that Jacob was a prophet. Certainly we'll see more of this next week in chapter 49, but we we do see it here as well. And we note here as Jacob is preparing his sons to be blessed by Jacob, he arranges them so that his firstborn, Manasseh, was at his left hand, and therefore as he is facing Jacob, it's going to be uh, Jacob's right hand that could reach out and place uh, on Manasseh's head and how he arranges it so that Ephraim, the younger son, will be on his right and therefore on Jacob's left. But Jacob crosses his hands and gives the blessing in that way because he knew that Ephraim, though younger, would be greater than his older brother. And the New Testament tells us explicitly that this was done by faith. Hebrews 11.21, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. But for our purposes, we should pay special attention to the words of Jacob's blessing there in verses 15 and 16. Let's, Let's hone in there. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he pronounces this blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh from the standpoint of one who has been blessed himself. Now, how had he been blessed? God, he said, has been his shepherd all of his life to that day. Here he is, an old man, 147 years old. He knows he's at death's door, so to speak. But he can look back and see that God has been his shepherd for all of his life. That God was the one who had guided him, who had strengthened him, who had helped him and had been with him all the way. And he also speaks here of God as the angel who had redeemed him from all evil. And of course, this fits right in with the way in which the Old Testament speaks, in that it sometimes speaks of God as an angel. Just to mention a a couple of other examples, think, for instance, of the way in which Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, speaks of Jacob's wrestling with the angel. Jacob wrestled with the angel in Genesis 32, and... Uh, Hosea puts it this way in Hosea 12. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. And so Jacob, in Genesis 32, is wrestling with this man, and Hosea calls it wrestling with an angel, wrestling with God. And so sometimes, indeed, we do read of an angel being spoken of as the Lord. Think likewise of the prophecy concerning Christ in Malachi chapter 3. 
the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, or could also be translated, the angel of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, declares the Lord. The, the angel or the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom you seek. In such cases, when we read of an angel who is spoken of as if he were God, we're to understand this speaking of the Son of God. The Logos, John chapter 1, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, who in time became our incarnate Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Surely no creature, not even a created angel, could redeem Jacob from all evil. An angel who redeems from evil has to be none other than God himself. And indeed, he is speaking of the Son of God when he speaks of the angel who has redeemed him from all evil. And so Jacob here gets to the end of his life, and he counts himself blessed. God has shepherded him through his life. This divine angel had redeemed him from all evil. Now, there's somewhat of a contrast, isn't there, from what we saw last week in chapter 47, verse 9, Jacob describing his life. We saw there that his life had been very tragic, filled with with evil events. He said, few and evil have been the days of my sojourning. But yet now, as he's placing this blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh, as he reflects upon the Lord and calls upon the Lord to bless his grandson, he can acknowledge the blessings which he has received from God. God had looked after Jacob, and Jacob knew it. Jacob had been redeemed from evil, not only from evil plots and designs of others, but he'd also been redeemed from the evil which he himself had done. He was redeemed, he was saved. And so on the one hand, Jacob could look back and characterize his days as having been few and evil, but on the other hand, he could now speak of the blessings and the redemption that he had received. In some respects, it was a a matter of perspectives. The old song said, I've looked at life from both sides now. Well, he he surely did. And clearly the perspective here in chapter 48 is the correct one and the better one. The British preacher Alexander McLaren was once comparing Jacob's two differing assessments of his life, that from chapter 47, verse 9, and this here in uh, chapter 48 that we're considering now. And I think think what McLaren said was, was spot on and helpful. He said, We have to govern memory, as well as other faculties, by Christian principle. We have to apply the plain teaching of Christian truth to our sentimental and often unwholesome contemplations of the past. There is enough in all our lives to make material for plenty of whining and complaining, if we choose to take hold of them by that handle. And there is enough in all our lives to make us ashamed of one murmuring word, we are devout and wise and believing enough to take hold of them by that one. Remember, you can make your view of life either a bright one or a dark one, and there will be facts for both. But the facts that feed the melancholy are partial and superficial, and the facts that exhort rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, are deep and fundamental. Now, Now, surely that's true. Surely that's true for all of us who are in Christ. On the one hand, we can can look at our lives and we can see 
plenty of bad things. Plenty of things that make us say, few and evil have been my days. There are facts for that. But there are also facts which argue the other way if we are in Christ. All who are in Christ know him who is the good shepherd. And we are under his care, and we know it. We go in, we go out, we find pasture. All who are in Christ know him who is the angel, the messenger of the covenant by which we are redeemed from all evil. We are redeemed by Christ, again, as we've considered, because he went to the cross to bear our sins as he hung on the cross. Christ took upon him all of the evils which we had done, took upon him the wrath which we deserved. And therefore, all who are in Christ can look back at the tragedies that have littered our lives and we can say, yes, those things are real. But God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Christ has redeemed me from evil. As one of the Protestant reformers expressed it, we which believe in Christ have Christ as the messenger of the New Testament, the remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, reconciliation with God, and life and salvation. We have those things if we are in Christ, and therefore we can be joyful. We can say with David in Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And we can say with him in Psalm 31, Blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Now this is true for all who are in Christ, for all who have repented of their sins and believed in him. Now I don't know all of you here this morning. There may be some of you who are still strangers to this good shepherd and are still strangers to the redemption that is found in him. And if that is true for you, as things currently stand, you don't know the good shepherd. You're still in sin and you are drowning in evil and your sins are dragging you down to hell. You need a savior. You need a good shepherd. You need this redemption that Jacob had, this redemption from all evil. And the good news of the gospel that I proclaim this morning is that it is yours for the asking. Scripture says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus himself promises, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who comes to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so trust in Christ. Come to know this angel who had redeemed Jacob from all evil. Come to know the shepherd who had guided him all his life long. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth of redemption that belongs to those who, who know you, who have come to you through faith in Christ. Father, we ask that you would give us Faith like Jacob's to see your good and guiding hand upon our lives. Let us see and know your love which has been poured out upon us through Christ. Lord, we pray that you give us joy in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of difficulty. Let us know the truth that weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. We thank you 
for your great gospel and your great love toward us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.